0: Hello and welcome to Prolific, where I study and share the ideas, frameworks, and conversations that embody the principles of success. A portion of Prolific involves me speaking with individuals who are using the concepts I write about to build companies of the future. In this first interview, I speak with Isaac Aboa, a friend that I am constantly inspired by. Isaac is the founder and CEO of Mello, a business to business tech startup. ...building tools for consumer goods companies based out of Accra, Ghana. For the past six months, Isaac and his team have been building the future of commerce and finance in Africa. Melo's platform, built with an engineering team of just three... ...can power the operations of companies as big as Dangote Cement. In this episode, we speak about Isaac's early experiments with entrepreneurship and technology... ...the importance of digitising Ghana's economy and the African continents more broadly and the power of big data and AI in mapping consumer behaviour. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did speaking with Isaac. So without further ado, I present to you my conversation on building Africa's next billion dollar commerce and finance enterprise with Mr. Isaac Aboa. All right, we are in. Um, I think there's there is no better place uh, to start this conversation then with an introduction um so i have uh, someone very special with me uh today um i managed to coerce him to come and come and speak to me but um his name is isaac aboa he's actually here from ghana um and it's going to be a very very interesting conversation around technology around business around um different things as it pertains to, to global affairs and how it's going to impact the African continent. So before we jump into to that, what I just want to say to everyone is how me and Isaac came across each other. Uh, before before we jump into our conversation, so um, I was working closely with Ghana for startups when I was building my own uh, talent acquisition startup, and I was aware of um, Isaac, who was also building a podcast called Change for Africa podcast, which we will get um, into a little bit later on. Um, but he me- that was around two years ago, and he messaged me two weeks ago that he was in London. I was I was surprised that he re- he remembered who I was and we had we met up for lunch a quick drink, and um that forty five minute conversation culminated in me saying that this is something that needs to be recorded um and hopefully distributed so I just want to introduce uh my brother Isaac i welcome to the pod um how are you feeling
1: Jason It's been amazing getting to you know connect with you back again in London, and I'm absolutely honored to be on the podcast uh I think what you've done over the few years has been great. And I, I'm excited to see the progress and how you elevate that to the next level. And I'm happy to share my thoughts uh, on the podcast.
0: Okay. Do you know what? There's no time like the present. So let's, let's jump into it. So obviously, I had to approach this conversation as if I didn't know who you were. So I, I did a little stalking and a little research and i guess the best place where i like to start conversations are at the core rather than at the periphery rather than building up the first question i have for you is why startups what was it that you saw in ghana or the world more broadly that brought you to the space of an intersection of technology and business
1: so i would like to take that question a little back into i guess my origin story so when i was in high school i was very interested in knowing what is happening in the world i went to a government high school in ghana it was a very good high school but we were used to curriculums and systems that were made for the country in which we were it was not beyond the periphery of ghana it didn't allow you to think beyond but we had a library that was 25 minutes from the school that I obsessed myself into. And I got to read all the best magazines in the world from the library. I read the GQs, the Time every week. I read um, the New York Times, I read, I read Time magazine, all these other good magazines, and I understood what was happening in the world. Uh, the Time, did the Time 100, and I read it a couple of times. I saw the state of innovation, art, Complexity in the world that I was not near or even close to being near to. And it inspired me. And a culmination of that led me to an introduction to philosophy and learning about the history of science. And I was a science student then. And I got interested in doing something beyond my environment. So I took the step to writing the SATs. I didn't come from a very good family. But I managed to convince my mother to, you know, use his, her savings from um, a puff puff business that she was doing so that I could write the SATs. I did well, I got scholarships to very good universities in the U.S., and I was supposed to go and study in the U.S. Unfortunately, a big barrier was that I couldn't pay for my flight. And in this trajectory of my thinking, I thought if I could get a scholarship, I will money to go. But that was a big barrier. Enough that they didn't allow me to go. So in fact, in scrambling about for money to make sure that I could finance that trip to the U.S., I wrote a book in three months. I wrote a 200-page novel in three months because my friend said, if you could write this book, I could introduce you to this publisher. He may buy the rights. You could get your money to travel. I did that. It didn't work out. I did so many things in that period. It didn't work out. And so. At the time, I was very much into writing poetry, etc. And after two years of being heartbroken, that my dream of going to the U.S. to build this whatever that would be, I was very interested in neuroscience and humans. At the times, so I wanted to go and do a course in neuroscience and perhaps go into medicine or something like that. Eventually, two years after that, I went to the University of Ghana, and study psychology it was not the psychology i was expecting when i was reading psychology today because i had consumed every article in psychology today it was a popular website on psychology and it meant that i had to rediscover what i wanted to do with that time first hundred days in the school we're having an interim assessment which was an assessment that was going to be 30 percent of my exam it was a statistic exam i remember very well the exam had started at three was going to end at five but i had met up with a team a week earlier, who were going to contest for a Halt Prize competition, which a student entrepreneurship contest, and something in me said, This was fun. I had picked up the concept, I was already very vocal in the team and showing leadership, and I was like, Yeah. 30 minutes in the exam, I stopped writing the paper and joined the people to pitch the the competition. Wow. So I failed the exam. Um but that really after that pitch competition it inspired something in me to say i am interested in the problem space and i want to endeavor into it and i took the next step which was that that vacation i was part of a uk ghana program where graduates and students from Ghana and the UK came together to work with social enterprises and I was the youngest there. Right. Everyone there was at least in the third or final year all graduate students and I was a first year student participating and I turned out at the end of the program to be one of the best candidates out of it. So that really sparked my interest and gave me the foundation to it and what I found out was that I was very 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 interested in thinking and the frameworks of thinking and how to solve problems. Because my obsession prior to this journey of going to the U.S. potentially and failing was actually about people and their problems, I eventually found that, and what enabled the problems and what could solve those problems. Mm -hmm. And so that really got me into how to build systems, how to think about problems, and that was my inspiration, that's my origin story into startups. And I found out that I was obsessed about problems. And if I found something that was a hindrance, I couldn't stop thinking about it until I could figure out a way to do it. So I start out really with an obsession with problems and figuring a way to solve it. I only build the operational skill set later on by actually getting my hands dirty Mm -hmm. but i was very much into thinking and building systems and building strategy and figuring out how to solve problems and that's really how i got interested in startups and then the ripple effect of how that connects to macroeconomic growth etc came into being but this really is
0: my introduction to startups. it's so interesting how often whenever i speak to people who are building things it, it starts with thought right of thinking having a look at like what's around you and then going through that a lot of actually startups whenever you speak to or, or speak to founders or 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 look at sort of the founding godfather startup founder godfather they talk about first principles exactly uh, they, they love talking about like how are you approaching this mm-hmm. at what level are you approaching yeah. this so it's interesting that you know you thought a lot about thinking and, like, the different ways. Exactly.
1: I I did discover first principles way, way, way later. However, I had been using first principles thinking before. yeah, But I didn't know how to capture it in language. But, yeah.
0: Which is more important. Like, Mm -hmm. the whole words and the theory, like, it's more important that you're using it so it shows that you're suited for your work. So, okay, so you now um, have done the Holt Prize and it's interesting as well how... Um, your mother being an entrepreneur in her own way. Oh,
1: yeah. My mother is one of the best entrepreneurs I know. There you go. Definitely. Because what my mother showed me the potential and as an entrepreneur, how to use lean resources and lean teams to build something great Mm -hmm. was definitely something I learned from my mom. I mean, my mom basically took care of our six, seven siblings all alone. Mm. And... She did that by being able to manage her resources extremely well. You didn't know how she was able to get money, but if there was a need, miraculously, she would find a use of it. So the ability to pull resources together to be able to save, to be able to manage people was something I learned from my mom. I mean, I've learned a lot from my mom, but that business instinct is something that I cannot give credit to any education mm-hmm. or any experience than my mom, who I watched... Um, although she was a petty trader at some level, but she did really
0: embody all the great skills of entrepreneurship. Mm, there you go. It doesn't, you don't need technology. Exactly. <laughs> you need all an time. attitude and yeah. an approach to mm-hmm. being an entrepreneur. So dude, that's brilliant. I I want to speak a little bit more as well about the next step after the halt. So, okay, you finished that and then you basically are now out into the world. So there's two things. Tell me a little bit about
1: Yeah, so the hot Prize scenario I gave was in the first year. We didn't win. It was in the final year that I went back and I put a team together, a team that relatively did not know anything about entrepreneurship. And we won the competition in Ghana, in Malaysia against 62 teams, and we came to the UK for a three-month accelerator, which is a very, very important training towards my eventual journey and my first time in London. And I saw the majestic architecture of London's transport system, something I had never seen before. Mm. And that inspired me to think about what could be for Africa's transport network, public transport network. And so I thought we could replicate at some level a culturally and contest-driven relatable network for Ghana, and potentially Africa. That's why I started thinking about how could we recreate Africa's transportation mm. network? Africa's transportation network has been riddled with a lot of problems, um, infrastructurally, et cetera. But there's also the component of these popular trotros in Ghana, danfos in Nigeria, that um, are the main carriers of humans, right? I say they are carriers of both humans and culture. Um, Mobility doesn't occur without these buses, but they are riddled with its own problems. Mm. And we wanted to take a very foundational approach to solving it. We had very big ambitions of transforming the whole network, but we wanted to start off with... Initially, we thought that we could connect those buses digitally. We found out that just the cultural mindsets and the history that the drivers who have been involved in that system for a very long time made it difficult for them to move. Mm -hmm. And so we could get a network of buses and then build our own bus network across different routes that would enable people, especially middle class um, and young people who could not afford recurrently Ubers and the boats, the Mm ride-sharing systems that existed. Um, The problem that we did find was that technology obviously was easy to build and it's always easy to build technology relatively because the problem is always a human problem People. a business problem and that's where the challenge is what we did find out was that um, transport companies were not willing to partner with us to give us the buses for the vast network that was the, one of the main challenges and even if they did, the pricing that they were giving us at the time would not make it sustainable. Yes. And a couple of people were building those things at the time. In Nigeria, shuttler's NG still exists, but a company called Trips in Ghana that raised, I think, 4 million, they changed their business model because mm. we tested that and found that it was not scalable because of these barriers. Um, people going from A to B, good. And you also have to get people en masse, right? Mm-hmm. You, It couldn't be scaled to every place because for the system to work very well, you needed to get busy streets where the utility of the buses could be maximized Mm -hmm. to turn a profit. Mm -hmm. So those were the challenges. But because of that, you could build this in partnership with the government Mm -hmm. that was willing to do the investment in the buses and you build the technology. So that's what we also wanted to do. So we built really... And I'm a very systems driven person. An entire system architecture for change of Ghana's transport industry. Wow. And we sent it to um, the people in charge. I don't want to mention names, but mm-hmm. obviously they ignored it. I do hear now rumors of them wanting to do something similar. That we give them an inspiration, I have no idea. <laughs> but that Probably. that is what <laughs> that is what is about to happen in Ghana here. Um, whether that is going to be executed and executed well is definitely another problem right so just on that actually
0: so it's so sorry just what I explained there what Isaac was explaining was his past startup curve Mm -hmm. and sort of the uh, problems that they ran across with the economics and things of that nature so I think what's interesting there is how you mentioned how you were going to pivot and basically sit the issue um, or sit the prospect of building this with government yeah. funnily enough it is a a how i see it a government mandate yeah infrastructure yeah or transportation yeah. um and oftentimes with businesses in africa when you're dealing with unit economics where people don't have a massive amount of disposable incomes mm-hmm. and margins are tighter mm-hmm. you would hope for government intervention mm-hmm. um so i say that to say i see your frustration there.
1: no i mean the technology can be built it just needs government buying and government investment first in the vehicles right and in regulation so a couple of things need to happen first of all there has to be government commitment to digitizing the entire unions that make up the transport network that needs to happen and when that is happening when that has happened there has to be commitment in digitizing the entire payment network. Mm-hmm. When that has happened, there has to be commitment by incentivizing people to move from cash to that digital payment. So and a lot of those things, product matters, mm-hmm. but the regulatory incentive that enables a product to be appealing to the customer is also very, very crucial. And so for me,
0: I, I mean, mean that, what me we're, we're going to
1: build that. right now is yeah. very important. The next which we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. but in the future, this is one of the core things I feel like I want to start. Um, I I like Elon Max very well, and the way he thinks because I, I feel like that's how I approach problems. I approach it at grand scale, let's solve a big problem yes. thing. Um, unfortunately, you need resources and big partners, and maybe if you're able to succeed with the first one, people will trust us enough to give us the chance to do it.
0: Awesome, awesome, awesome. You and the reason why sorry for interrupting you that it's a great segue into the next thing so let me just give you a bit of a backdrop before i ask you what i'm going to ask you so i was um listening to strive and james so Strive. yes i see you and uh james i forget his uh, last name but he's a senior vice president at google and they're having a conversation around Uh, digital transformation in Africa Mm, and AI and all of that. Oh, cool. So you saw it. In there, uh, Strive was basically talking about how he is very much investing in the digital infrastructure across wherever, from Cape Town all Mm, the way to Egypt. Cassava
1: Network.
0: Cassava Network. There you go. So my question to you is, very interesting conversation which we can riff about. But my question to you is what does... Digitizing Africa's economy mean to you because you've mentioned a lot around the cultural attitudes which I think a lot of the time startups or other businesses or other people are motivated to make change you can't necessarily account for you can't put that in a slide deck so what does digitizing Africa's economy mean to you so
1: there's a guy who is very influential and I think thinking again is principally important in Africa's top leadership around entrepreneurship and he's worked with some of the leading thinkers in the world. He wrote a book called Prosperity Paradise. I don't know if you've heard of it. I have, yeah. Yeah. And this guy is Afosa Ojomo. And I actually had one of the earlier episodes of Change Africa podcast with him. Unfortunately, we lost the file, so we couldn't record it. And I'm hoping that we can have that conversation again. And he talks about how innovation can lift nations out of poverty and how to build uh, market leading innovations, right? I think what the digital economy does is that it expands the the GDP potential of Africa. And that is why it is very important. Mm. Because what happens is if you're able to build a transport network, right? The way I see transportation is that it's not just the mobility of people, it's the mobility of aspirations and dreams and talent, because London's transport system has enabled, say, someone who is in Hackney work now to probably work somewhere two hours from here and not feel the stress of the transport on them as against the same two hour commute that will be way more stressful, but way, way shorter Mm. in the African context. That is, in some level, first, the potential of people to go into a place to work and get productivity that would increase the company's productivity and contribute to potentially GDP Mm. reduced. That's the first thing that does that. But also, when people come to work tired, they come to work not as motivated and they come with reduced energy to contribute to set GDP eventually. And so I see that as important that if you build these principal foundational systems that enable productivity, powered by digitalization, you improve the potential of your GDP because you maximize the potential of the individuals to create more value. And that is why it's very important to to build those systems. It's not so much about that it has to be digital, that If digitization would be a route to maximizing the potential of the people then we should use it as that mechanism to maximize GDP and you can see that everywhere you can see that in China you can see that in Singapore but even if you don't look too far Nigeria's tech economy and tech ecosystem has enabled a lot to happen right and it's going to fill gaps, for example, in London, et cetera, and increase the potential for a business that would previously not get a loan, to get a loan, buy more goods, increase GDP. And that is enabling the productivity of the company and enabling the economy to survive. And that is why we need to build these things. It's not just like the language. It's
0: a very well, well put um, framework. I didn't necessarily... M- probably silly of me, I didn't necessarily consider the impact on GDP and what's interesting is in that conversation with Strive and James, Strive pointed to do you know that the levels of FDI in in the whole, FDI being foreign direct investment in the whole of Africa is less than the FDI that goes into Singapore Mm -hmm. and these kind of things that you're speaking about being invested in as an infrastructure again contributes to the amount of capital that's available to Invest so, I think that's super interesting. We okay. So on the topic of digitizing Africa's economy, um your work, you're playing in that space at the moment. You're seeing the cultural shift that's required. That probably with our mean age of I don't know twenty years old or something like that, it it's on the it's coming. And the trajectory. It's on the trajectory. Let's jump into what it is that you're actually in London for, Mellow. Uh, Let's jump into what it is that you're doing today. So Mello is is Isaac's new startup. It's a business-to-business software-as-a-service company or known as B2B SaaS company. I want you to take us through the vision and take us through the problem.
1: So like you said, it's a B2B SaaS that is going to morph into a fintech. The reason is... It is needed for us to build the foundations, right, like I said, infrastructure is very important. The problem, if you take it far out, so I'm not talking about the problem of are solving, is that eventually, someone has to solve the very, very visible cash problem in Africa. Africa is engulfed in a cash problem, and cash is good, cash is brilliant, I mean, cash is excellent. Cash is interoperable. Cash is easily exchanged. Cash is mobile. Cash is not interoperable ac- across countries, though, mm. for most for the most part. Um, but, you know, most digital currencies are not even, um, unless you have to go through a chunk of regulation. Mm-hmm. But cash is brilliant. So people love cash. But... There is an inherent problem with cash cash doesn't come with a digital record and especially where we come from in africa people have not historically learned to take transactional details and the default of digital payment is that it's embedded with that digital record Mm -hmm. of transactions and that is very important because the data of transactions is data that is data that has allowed, for example, the Western economy to be built, that has enabled the growth of the Western economy as it is now, especially in the financial services industry, because it, they have massive amounts of data, and those massive amounts of data enables massive amounts of opportunity. Understanding. So that is far out in mm. the future. So you need to find a way to solve that problem far out. Again, first principles, thinking we have tested a lot of the ideas that currently are being used to attempt at solving that problem. One of which is, for example, bookkeeping. A lot of people are using bookkeeping as a mechanism for mom-and-pop shops to do that. What we found out is that the work to be done in the shop at taking records of each transaction is incredibly difficult and not as important as the sale of the product to the shopkeepers or the shop owners. Yeah. And so for them, it's less of a priority to do that. And so we'll, we believe that companies that have taken that business model are going to find it very difficult to justify how they morph that into a product mm-hmm. that will succeed. That's what I believe. So mm-hmm. we're not taking that approach. Mm-hmm. We variated that approach to wanting the customer, the point of sale, to. Input that data mechanism so that you can then share to the customer, to the shop owner ten, later and use that data. But that means that you are immediately creating a marketplace of two users, the buyer and the seller, and you needed to get as much consumer for a, um, a shop. And that's also very challenging to build. But that's a similar approach that some people have already created in Nigeria that's called Pocket. Pocket is an app owned by Piggy Tech Investments. They bought ABEG technologies. Mm. Small guys in Nigeria use a social commerce peer-to-peer um, payment system that caught fire, that sponsored Big Brother Nigeria, got a lot mm. of users, and then morphed that system because they had now created a lot of consumers. Mm-hmm. And then... Interface it with retailers that already existed mm-hmm. to create that marketplace that I'm talking about. They spent a lot of money to achieving that. So that's also another way. We think the more sustainable way is to build vertically across the entire chain of commerce in Africa. And so we went up to the top of commerce. Most of commerce in Africa involves fast moving consumer goods products and um, consumer pharma, electronics, etc. So we went to the top of that chain. The top of that chain is usually multi global multinational global um, I mean just for the sake of your recording let me repeat that. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: We went to the top of that chain and we surveyed multinationals global companies like Unilever, Nestle, and the big guys. And we found that decision-making there can take forever. Technology, they have problems in there, but they could probably fix them themselves and they don't have an incentive to bring people outside. Mm. They usually outsource their best consulting to their Accentures McKinsey, and yeah. the McKinsey's to come and solve their problems for them. So it's not a thing that is very, very attractive to a startup. But way below them are local and regional manufacturers who also have big stake in the market right someone might argue and say the big guys have 50 percent of the market share and in most cases true but the big guys also have a lot of big distributors their key distributors are usually big multi-brand distributors who by themselves are big operations and they need technology that they don't have yet and so we are plugging in technology for two things that they need in their daily operations. Sales, mm-hmm. which is when if they are a producer of the product, and the product has been produced, they have to sell it. And when they sell it, they have to distribute it. Sales and distribution is called to the operations. And they don't have technology that helps with sales and, uh, and distribution. But just saying they don't have technology for sales and distribution doesn't quite address your problem. Because the problem really is that They do not know what moves revenue, and so it's hard for them to double down on those efforts. Mm -hmm. Their field operations are mostly at the helm of people on the grounds without oversight. And so again, they do not know how they are performing on the field and how to improve the systems that lead there. There's a big theft problem that they are not always able to cut out because, again, they can't see the movement of Mm -hmm. revenue and the movement of inventory all the time. There's also the problem of them brute forcing sales, which is that they go to their wholesalers and distributors and recurrently ask them if they want to buy, then providing them a platform and a system where they can see whether they have mm-hmm. a shortage and they can immediately order from them. We are solving all of these problems together. Mm. We believe when we solve these problems for them together, the reason why it's a vertical solution is that the, the system that we built enables them to allow their their smaller distributors to use the same system and capture data together. But because we are also giving them access to their wholesalers and their retailers to buy from them, we also have them in our chain. So we have data on them. And this data all coming together means that we have entire and deep distribution of data across the industry. vertical yeah. industry yeah. and say we by default would become if we succeed the biggest owners of consumer data yeah. on the continent yeah. and that is even money in itself like yeah. a lot of people are willing to pay a lot of money to yeah. understand what is happening in shops yes. right but by default we will know it. because for example from day 1 one of the things that we're trying to do not in the beta product, but right after it is to enable surveys in every every shop. Yeah. Like every shop that will be operated in, you can do a survey there. Yeah. So a survey can be deployed by someone who is sitting in the headquarters of the shop on the, of the company, and immediately if they have thousand retailers, ten thousand, hundred thousand retailers, if they are all in the network, all of them get a survey. And all of them do it. And there is an incentive, for example, for them to do it. You can just put a 5% discount on a product and they will, it will incentivize people to do that. And you can do that all on the same platform. And so we become owners of that, that. The question is, how? what do we do with that data? That we own. And what we'll do with that data is by plugging financial service B2B mm-hmm. from liquidity in lending, from FX transactions to obviously facilitating digital payments. But eventually, maximizing that power to enable the shops at the ground to get recommendations that give them real value across their business operations. And we will use that as a lever to incentivize them organically to tap into the digital payments that will allow you and I to easily go to any shop and then they would be willing to accept digital payments from you. Because the problem is that the daily mom and pop shop everyday mom and pop shop has no interest in receiving your cash right mobile money in africa is great the problem with mobile money is that it's a circulatory mechanism for digital money peer-to-peer it almost never is except for countries like kenya that have succeeded in doing that never is the actual means for commerce when people are buying something they resort to using the digital security system as a withdrawal mechanism to withdraw money mm-hmm. and then use the cash to go and pay. Mm-hmm. That's not what you want
0: to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's go. There's loads of things that you mentioned that are really, really good. Let's go back. Take me through the user journey of me as a distributor and a medium wholesaler using Mellow. Take me through that user journey. I sign up, what happens? And then I want to jump into loads of other things.
1: So you're a big distributor. You have, say, 10,000 retailers, and then you, you have 100 wholesalers, blah, blah, blah. What The first thing that we're going to do is that hopefully you have the data. We're hoping that you have the data existing in some Excel file or something like that. We're going to help you clean the data if there is a need to be, Right. And we're going to help you up, update that data and upload the data in our system. So there's a lot of mechanisms that we built into the technology for easy uploads. Mm-hmm. And uh, it will check what the technology can do. You know, the technology Excel can files, always do CSV yeah, files. Exactly. Yeah. So Excel, CSV, and it is going to check whether an email is at least in the correct email format, the phone number is in the correct email format, et cetera, et cetera. And make sure those data is uploaded. Also, we're going to help you, well, we're going to teach you how to collect GPS data of your current customer base. Because every day they go to these places, right? Well, most days they go to these places, their customers, because of the brute force system of sales that they use. So what we'll do is that in the application, Everywhere you go, you can pick a GPS location. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be one of the first steps, right? Mm-hmm. Pick GPS location. Again, some of them already have this. Mm-hmm. If they don't have this, we help them to do that. So the first thing is that we get the data in. When we get the data in, the system is built such that it works as if the data was already in all the while. And so it plugs everything into the mechanisms of your operations. And you immediately start getting insights Mm -hmm. from the data you've plugged in. Mm. So if you had previous sales history that you've plugged in, you start seeing how that connections to that exist. Mm -hmm. But if you didn't have and you are now putting in your sales history, it will take some time for you to get the insights that you are doing. But this also means that no more paperwork. If people are coming to buy from you directly, there is a mechanism for you to start entering those details into it. You don't have to do invoices manually again. You can do your invoices there. Your suppliers' purchase orders, all, all of them are there. In fact, you don't have to use your emails for all of that because we've built an email engine inside mm-hmm. the system, mm-hmm. where basically you'll be sending emails through the application to your own uh, uh, email systems. So you start doing all of these small things, right? Your you are plugging to your customer base. So we help you your customer base download the app, all they need is that they have to use their phone numbers which they have already given to you, right, to sign in. When they sign in, we recognize that the phone number is in our database and we connect them to the shop that is their distributor. But the brilliance is the architecture of the shop who is in, say, Hackney Wigs, right, getting the delivery from the guy who is a sales agent in Hackney Wigs. And not from the one who is since they come then hmm. because it is built such that it is a distributed system we are connecting the architecture of the business as it works in in the physical place into a digital space the
0: reason why that's so interesting is we just spoke about transportation
1: exactly it actually it's very very similar hmm. the framework of thinking is that because a digital transport system actually is building upon the physical infrastructure and then placing it into a digital space that enforces efficiency. Mm -hmm. And that is the same thing that we're doing here. So the business has a warehouse, has a distribution center. You put all of those facilities there, you can track the movement of goods as they happen in the physical, in the digital space, so that there is correspondence of data, so that there's enabled tracking all on the same system, and there's nothing that is missed out. And then we glean insight out of this. And then your field agents operations are tracked. So your field agents get a mobile application, mm-hmm. both the drivers and the sales agents get a mobile application where every single day the attacks are sent to them. So the manager just has to go into his dashboard. So there's a call dashboard that where all the data is put into, like I said. Goes to the dashboard, there's a tax feature, and the sales go to tax. And then just input the tax for the day. In mm-hmm. fact, that work is also very demanding. So what we have done is that we automate tax. Tax usually for them is checking up on a company mm-hmm. if they are while they have not having the ordered for some time. Um moving orders that have come in into distribution lines so that they can be delivered. So we digitize all of them. Mm-hmm. We notice this person has been buying from you every week, they missed one week of payments. The technology recognizes Mm -hmm. it and then schedules the visit to the place as a tax and then automates the assignment of the tax. Right. So you don't even have to do all of that. And nobody has to say, oh, Kojo or Mansa or Jason has to do that. Technology knows who's supposed to be in that area and assigns it automatically. And that comes in mobile application.
0: And that's also another incentive for a distributor to join because it lowers the FT, lowers the need for headcount. Oh, because that's,
1: that's what eventually happens, right? Because again, they are brute forcing their sales. Mm-hmm. Right. And they are doing that with a lot of personnel. If Mellow works, they might just not need all of these people. They might just need a driver. Yes. Right, because they'll be able to cut all out of, all of these people and enable super efficiency,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And if the person previously was going to five places, they can go to 10 now. Yes, Fewer staff, but even more efficiency. That is what enables it. And no way someone can steal because every good everywhere is tracked across the entire ecosystem. And I think for these companies, what they are not also able to know is the comparative performance of their different stores and centers. Mm -hmm. Why is this performing better? Why is this not? Why is this product here or not? Right. And so the movement, knowing in real time and in trend lines how products moves in this part of the town to this so that You don't risk the risk of expiry and immediately moving it to a busier place, doubling down, etc. is important. But as the network grows, we even help people in the distribution space to get even more stores, even more retailers. Because what will happen is we will know the wholesalers who don't have this water brand, right, but need water and just don't have it. And we just plug in and say, oh, we have all these main companies who are doing that. So we start reaching out to them. So we increase their market share.
0: They say uh, knowledge is power. Exactly. (laughs) Knowledge is power. So, uh, okay. Before we jump into data, which is a whole discussion in itself, which we'll cover, I want to just go and ask you, what stage of Mela are we at? So we're fundraising put this is your call out to anyone who might be interested in so what round are we at what uh, value are we going for x y and z
1: well today is the 4th of october that's when we are recording this podcast and by the end of october the mellow mvp product will be built and the mellow mvp product is not a normal mvp it's actually a very stacked product because it's a dashboard that comes with two correspondent applications, a mobile app for field operations for the driver and the field agents, and a sales ordering application, basically an ordering application for the retailers, wholesalers to be able to order directly from the company, together with a dashboard for the entire company's operations. So these things are coming together. And by the end of this month, two companies are going to be testing that. We already have a waitlist of more than 20 companies. We are testing with two because we want to, by the end of the year, knock the socks out of the bag of executing to extreme profession the operations of the company and get the companies and this product to be able to love it, right? And then we will be able to scale it from next year. We are raising a 1 million pre-seed round at a 15 million. Wait, did I say that right? Okay, let me just... (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) We are raising a 1 million pre seed round at a 10 million post money valuation. And we are seeking active participation for anyone that believes in large skill transformation of Africa's digital economy, starting from the top of the consumption chain. Um, and we're looking for people who are visionary and oriented and with the right networks to help us build this. Um, because we are starting from Ghana, Nigeria. Companies already registered in Ghana, Nigeria, and obviously in Delaware and the US. And this company's technology has global use case. You can see how all we'll work in Africa, but also in Southeast Asia and all of these other countries. And our goal is to, in every country, build a huge base of companies that are top enough that when we start mass scale operation at the bottom, we'll be able to capture a lot of growth. And, and, and we want people who can help us in that jenny so yeah
0: boom there you have it so whoever's listening um i'll leave all of isaac's contacts in the show notes so there you go and i'll be promoting it myself data 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 so two levels to this this part of the discussion you spoke a little bit about distribution just before in terms of how you can go out and build that big sort of ecosystem. And you spoke about how important sales and distribution is. It can create a monopoly in itself. So I guess that's one part of the conversation. what, What do you see around, we understand the importance of data, but the future of data, what are you going to do with the data that you basically have? Um, And what does, we spoke when we met two weeks ago about data and that it's not a checklist of saying, what's your name, what's your address, what's your phone number? It's understanding someone's behavior. And you mentioned this quite a lot with Mello in terms of being able to give predictive, where we kind of move into sort of the artificial intelligence space. So maybe this is a piece of both AI and data. How do how do how are you thinking about those two things as it pertains to Africa more broadly? But also how are you gonna implement that within Mello?
1: So data and AI actually goes hand in hand. Because what now is being called AI, like the chat GTPs, the open AIs that have made such products, large language models, right? Are based off of chunks of data for data to become good enough to use there's a whole field of data engineering that exists of cleaning the data building pipelines and allowing the data to be stored in a way that enables it to be used in the future what Melo for example is doing right now with the technology that we have right is to build the foundations for clean data in consumer goods. That, in most places, don't exist. Crucial. And that consumer data is perhaps the most important data in the world. Because consumer data is data that shows people's spending and buying patterns. And underlines bigger macro economic activity. And it's a predictor of the performance of an economy. Because usually people spending patterns reflect their quality of life, their living wages, etc etc. Mm. So there's a lot of connection in there. Right now, with mellow's immediate B2B play, you get to understand that from how goods are being sold. But our eventual transition into consumer distribution is what is going to seal that deal. Because not only do we know what goods are sold, but who is buying them. And so how I like to visualize that is that you sort of are able to create a map of economic activity and a map of economic activity is that Jason wakes up and buys X and y at this time because usually transaction datas come with that mm-hmm. and then buys another thing at this time and buys another thing at that time and we even know where he, is buying those items. It is a lot of data that potentially tells us who Jason is and what he likes, what he likes to spend his money on and how much he spends his money on those things and how often. And the combination of that data to the institutions that sell those items is a big, big data set. The reason why facebook has become too powerful it's because facebook created the variation of this data set with social data and so they could build interconnections between people's relationships and their interests to determine what political affiliations they may have because it's very predictable if you can tell what messages people post what organizations they follow what their friends or friends and their families do Cambridge online Analytica. yeah that can analytical scenario seems very very plausible to achieve and obviously i'm not suggesting amelo is going to become uh, a company that uses people's data but Meta the company Facebook Has become that successful Because of that data set And it is That Similar data set That we're building But With commerce Which arguably is more powerful Because It gets you to understand What people's Financial Contribution To The economy is At an almost Individual level And what will you do With that Our vision Is to build The biggest financial services Ecosystem in africa with that and that means solving the lending problem both for businesses for and for consumers obviously building great digital payments amazing and building a credit system that fully works building a digital commerce economy where almost everything can be plugged in enabling um intra-African trade so that people can buy things across different countries. And hopefully, like we said initially, this infrastructure becomes the foundation of doubling, tripling Africa's GDP.
0: Amazing. It's so, it's so interesting how by creating bilateral incentives, you can contribute to an overall vision by making sure that the mom and pop shop or the tuk-tuk shop is uh, incentives are met. Incentives are everything in business. Mm.
1: Incentives are everything in business. You just need to understand what incentive people want and you give to them. Mm -hmm. Everybody is self-centered. If you think like that, and you think that people want something, and you give that thing to them, usually they would want to consume your product. Mm -hmm. And at the company level, what you learn is that that Incentive might actually not be the product, it's just having a good time with the person who's in the decision making room, or knowing that the decision making room person wants to be technologically known as a person of innovation and speaking that language to them about how the product can, you know, mm. meet those technological needs, or just someone who, whatever interest that is. Someone who has some interest and you need to feel that. And when that person's interest is met, he enables people to use that in an organization and that is a mom and pop shop. If you have have to understand what the owner of the shop wants and give it to them. And if you give it to them, in our mindset, these people want to sell. And if you enable them to sell more, that is the incentive they need for you to coerce, enable, them to whatever you want, but mm-hmm. you need to fix their core problem first. Mm-hmm. You need to give them the incentive they want first, mm-hmm. and I think that's what really makes um, people people take.
0: Amazing, it keeps you top of mind. As we mentioned, AI. Um, just as just a side comment, I am stoked by the fact that you mentioned things like natural language, uh, models and things like that. I think all too often when people mention AI, um, it's like a a moving robot or something like that, like. It, it's here, it's been here, and it's like the more that we do, the bigger that it gets. It's like feeding the beast. Um, so I think, I think that people jump
1: the gun in the AI conversation, especially in the African context. The infrastructure and the systems that enable AI need to be built, the data needs to be built, the data needs to be clean, and the then data can be leveraged, right? Mm-hmm for that and I think that's what we're doing what is happening the movement in AI right now and the explosiveness of it it's because it is consumer oriented right chat GTV can be used by everyone it is not that people have not been building solutions like that mass scale for businesses Mm. people have been doing that for some time but now, it is becoming more consumer-oriented, and so the everyday person can participate in that. And so, it makes it more real yes. than it would be for some company that is using it in some context. Yeah. But the point I want to make is that, eventually, Melo will become one of the biggest players in Africa's AI space, because we'll be using such massive millions, billions data sets of commerce data. Mm-hmm from different African countries, perhaps globally, Mm -hmm. and we'll be churning that data into deep insights, Mm -hmm. into deep systems. Predictive reasoning. Predictive reasoning, and all sort of mechanisms that will enable that. It's the data that's really the foundation, and I think we are having our focus at the right place and not being swayed by the temporary, very temporary wave. It is not that AI is going to be something that passes, but the obsession with AI now is going to pass when AI becomes a norm. Yes. And what will be important is the people that have built the systems that will enable it. Yes. Like, it's like, you know, things like Change Africa podcast we're going to talk about. Yes. Where there is suddenly an interest in podcasting, but we're keeping our eye gleaned into the bigger picture. I think it's always about the bigger picture for me. It's
0: a, that's, a, that's a great point and a great segue. And yes, to those of us who are building products um it sh- probably should be product plus ai rather than ai product so um yeah there we go uh, segue 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 into the change africa podcast so this is a guy who who's not he doesn't sleep he clearly doesn't sleep he wears more than one hat so for everything that we spoke around around startups technology and business um he also has a massive uh, contribution to um, Africa's development through sharing stories and through his guests that he invites onto his podcasts, um, the Change Africa podcast. Um, I listened to season one, and what I was uh, happy to hear when we linked up two weeks ago was now we're on season five. Um, season? Yes. Yeah, so, big, big congratulations on the consistency there. So, um, Give me a deep dive into the Change Africa podcast and what makes you so excited about it?
1: What makes me excited about the Change Africa podcast is that we're creating a compendium of deep expertise, deep expertise and insight into the minds of Africa's leading thought leaders who have garnered way too much knowledge in their multi years of experience and have not had the opportunity to have a platform to share it at a deeply fundamental level. And that's what the podcast does. The podcast really enables you to deep dive into specific African industries with insights from the people who are part of the building of those industries and are usually at the top of that building process. And that is what is special about the Change Africa podcast. And it has a host who is deeply concerned about those issues, deeply knowledgeable across a multifactor of issues and leaves with that curiosity of wanting to understand and progress Africa's development and brings that awareness and humility to the conversation that allows people to talk. Awesome. Because for most of these podcasts, I mean, yours, obviously, is definitely a brilliant exception. People are obsessed with talking about themselves and leading the conversation. And the Change Africa podcast is not. I mean, there can be five, six, ten minutes of someone just speaking, the guests just speaking. Because these people should be writing books. They don't have time. And the Change Africa podcast provides them an hour or more to deep dive into the things that they have thought about for a very long time. And so it's not surprising that a podcast guests, around 60% or more of them are CCU's managers of big international organizations that have concern and interest in Africa, because they hear from the people that are leading those industries and those spaces. And that's what makes the Change Africa podcast um, an interesting podcast. And for me, I had a conversation this week that really, really challenged me, even though I'm a narrative storyteller about narrative-first thinking and the importance of thinking narratives first. Mm. Because people, no matter what you are selling to them, need to buy the story of what that thing is. And Africa is being sold to the world every single day on different media platforms in a way that doesn't make it attractive. Mm -hmm. And platforms like Change Africa Podcast and other narrative-driven institutions and initiatives are working very very hard to portray africa's in its beauty without hiding its glory but shaping the foundation for people to understand its realities towards a positive appreciation of the realities of the challenges but of the massive opportunity mm-hmm. that is africa think, and that uh, people should come and investing
0: i concur i concur from the perspective of um humans were very anecdotal
1: mm.
0: you tell a story you show someone data or you tell them a story they're probably going to remember the story mm-hmm. so um that is phenomenal and if the guest that you had mentioned to me before is that guest well you you guys are going to want to tune in for that one so i will put, <laughs> i will definitely put a link to yeah. the uh change africa uh podcast exciting
1: there. guests for season five very yeah. exciting guests for big season five.
0: big big um okay so actually we've hit the uh summit of our conversation we've covered so much there and um yeah me and isaac are probably gonna continue talking long after this goes yeah. off air. um anyway but i think that's probably enough for um, whoever's listening today. So once again, bro, thank you. Thank you very much for hopping on. <laughs> and bro, uh, take care. And anyone who is interested in connecting with Isaac, I will share all his details below and uh, we will um, keep you abreast with, with what goes on with Melo. So thanks for tuning in.
1: Um, and thank you for inviting me, Jason. It's been a wonderful conversation.
0: All right, there you go.